Well, it is good to see the sun out today, isn't it? It's been a long winter. You have any kids, little ones especially, around your place? Kids that you love, but that occasionally drive you a little crazy? Or if you don't have any kids, do you remember what it was like? If you did at one point, I want to take a poll this morning, especially in the midst of what's been our sheltering place experience that some of us have had. Uh, If you had to pick between these two pictures up here of kids, which are yours, A or B? Now, be honest. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands because you might incriminate yourself, but uh, thanks for at least considering it. Conflict is a part of, of life and sometimes family. Back in the spring of 1992, there were six days of bloody riots out in Los Angeles. There were about 55 people killed, 2,000 injured, about a billion dollars worth of property damage. Rodney King, whose vicious beating had prompted a lot of this, offered this memorable, passionate plea. He said, people, I just want to say, can we all get along? Can we all get along? Even his tombstone has those words written on it. But the truth is that quite often we don't get along. We clash, we struggle, we lash out against each other. We fight wars, sometimes in our homes or in battlefields. And unfortunately, sometimes that even happens in the church of all places that you would think there should be peace reigning. Sometimes we have struggle and conflict. Well, this morning we come to the first 10 verses of the fourth chapter of the book of James and our Blue Jeans Theology, which talks for us all about that. It asks this question as it opens up, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? That's the question of the ages, isn't it? You, you go back to the very beginning. What was it that caused Cain to take Abel out? What was it with Jacob and Esau that they couldn't get along? Or King Saul and the future King David that they had that struggle in their lives? If you, if you go through the Bible or you go through your life, the list is long. Why do allies become enemies? Why do brothers end up as adversaries? Or if I can get real personal, how is it that somebody that has been a part of your life now is at odds with you or you with them? If not your irritants, they have become in some sense your enemies. You see, James's question is real relevant. Why? Why do we have these quarrels and fights among us? Well, The quick answer that a lot of us have is it's because of all those crazy people around us. It's not my fault. It's everybody else's fault. I have to to live with these nagging neighbors or these bossy bosses or these stubborn spouses or cranky coworkers that you add to the list on and on and on. But at the heart of it, what we're saying is the problem in life with not getting along with people is not my problem. It's theirs. They are the ones. It's their problem fault. Or sometimes, as we thought earlier in one of the texts that we look at, we just blame it on on the devil. He's the one that punches all of our sensitive buttons, so we'll just say he made me do it. If he weren't around, we'd all be able to get along. 
Or sometimes James mentioned earlier that sometimes we blame God for it all. That's, that's kind of strange, but sometimes we, we do that. But the text to get today leads us to understand some of the causes of our struggle. He leads with these words. What causes the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want to have what you don't have, so you scheme and kill until you get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. James says the primary problem in our struggles is not from the outside, it's from the inside. It's not about other people, it's about us. It begins, he begins, with an honest plea for our own self-examination. A few weeks back, we talked about temptations, remember, and the way that we sort of blame them on other people. And James, at that point, also reminded us that the genesis of temptation is from within. Chapter 1, verse 14. He said, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away. And these desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. We are to blame. In chapter 4, from our text today, he talks about evil desires. It's a, it's a Greek word from which we get the word that we use sometimes, hedonism. It's that, that love and that, that focus on pleasure and satisfaction that's all about us. It's what I want. It's what I enjoy. It's what I need in my life. A lot of times sensual appetite. James says that really is the source. It's inside us. Uh, Jimmy Buffett comes to Cincinnati about every summer. He does a string of concerts. I live not too far from, from Riverbend, and all the Parrotheads, which is a crazy group, come out to be able to see his concerts. When he was, uh, when he was hitting about his 50th birthday, his midpoint, he decided he was going to write a book. It's entitled, A Pirate Looks at 50. He grew up in South Carolina where barefooted beach enjoyment was a part of his life, but every year they'd come back from summer vacation, and the teachers would usually have them write something like how they spent their summer vacation in so many words or less. So Buffett, to begin his book in the introduction, decided that's what he would try to do. He'd start with his adolescence, and he'd go through where he was at that time in life, and in 400 words or less, he would, he would say what life had been. Now, I'm not going to read you the 400 I've edited it down a little bit, but it's interesting to see how he describes his life. Here's some of what he said. He said, I learned to play guitar, lived on the beach, started a band, broke up my band, and went out on the road solo. I signed a record deal, got married, moved to Nashville, had my guitars stolen, bought a Mercedes, put out my first album, went broke, wrecked my Mercedes, got divorced, and moved to Key West. I sang and worked on a fishing boat, went totally crazy, did a lot of dope, met the right girl, made another record, had a hit, bought a boat, and sailed away to the Caribbean. I started another band, worked the road, had my second and last hit, bought a house in Aspen, started spending summers in New England, got married, broke my leg three times in one year, had a baby girl, made more records, bought a bigger boat, and sailed away to St. Bart's. I got separated from the right girl, sold the boat, sold the house in Aspen, moved back to Key West, worked the road, and made more records. I rented an apartment in Paris, went to Brazil for a carnival, learned to fly, went into therapy, 
quit doing dope, bought my first seaplane, flew all over the Caribbean, almost got my second divorce, moved to Balibu for more therapy, got back to the right girl. I worked the road, moved back to Nashville, bought a summer home in Long Island, had another baby girl, found the perfect seaplane, and moved back to Florida. Built a home in Long Island, crashed the perfect seaplane in Nantucket. Lived through it, tried to slow down a little. Woke up one morning and I was looking at 50, trying to figure out what comes next. Well, if you want to, want more, if you want to read all the unedited version, you've got to get the book, if, or maybe not. You may have had enough of it right there. But, um, you know, isn't a lot of our life spent in trying to figure out what's next, what we want that's next? And if you had, in 400 words or less, the responsibility of summing up all your life, what would you write about you? How much, it, how much of it would be about grasping for something more to make your life just right? William Willimon says that our culture is but a supermarket of desire. William Barclay describes it as the pleasure-dominated life. One more boat, one more house, one more wife, what satisfies me. The problem is that most of us, if we try to live life that way, always have a sense of all of our needs being unmet, never satisfied. And we litter our lives with the casualties that we create along the way. Here's the problem. James has already diagnosed it. It is really not all about me. And if it is, everybody else, including all the people that are sitting around you, are secondary or thirdary or fourthary or if they've even made it that far. They are the ends to your means. The engine that drives conflict in our lives is inside of me. It is that seductive voice that I have that is my own. Or to put it another way, the essence of all sin and the damage it brings is selfishness. My selfishness. It is a life that is driven by what I want at whatever relational cost there may be. You do whatever you need to do to get to what you want. James goes so far as to say that what you actually do is you scheme and you even kill. Now, he's writing this letter to the church. Surely he's not talking about people killing each other. But haven't there been people in your life that you thought seriously about it? You know, maybe you had enough sense not to pull it off. But sometimes Christians can act like pagans. In the past, James had talked about how we are bitterly jealous and how we're driven by selfish ambitions and how we boast and we lie. Maybe he's not too far off here when he says, you know, sometimes, sometimes we even move close to murder. To get it a little darker, he, he says in verse 2, if you have what I want in your hand, I will be jealous of your good fortune, and I will do whatever I have, including waging war, to be able to get it back. It's not just what I want, it's but what you have that I want, that I'm going to get by whatever means that I have. 
your wife, your job, your house, your health, your success, whatever you possess that I see, that I want, I will seize. When my daughter was growing up, there was a, there was a children's music guy named Rafi, and he had an album that I liked, and, and I, I gave it to her, and there was one of the songs on there that really drew me to it, and the song was this lyric. It's mine, but you can have some. It's mine, but we can share it. And the whole song was about getting along with other people and sharing. And I, th- I like that lyric, but boy, it is hard to be that generous in life. Too often it's about what's mine or what I try to pry out of your hands. It's not about sharing. It's about conflict. The story is told about Abraham Lincoln, one time he was walking down the street with his two boys and they were loudly fighting about something. And Somebody walked up to him and said what the problem was. And he said, it's the problem that the, old, the whole world has. He said, I have got three, three walnuts and each boy wants two. Isn't that our problem? We always want more. When a two-year-old learns the word me, my, or mine, you are in trouble because that selfishness that seems to be embedded in us comes to life. How many wars have been fought over just wanting another piece of land? How many relationships ruined just because somebody wanted to get on a a higher rung that they were already on? And churches themselves sometimes sacrifice whatever peace they have because of that cost. The Jewish philosopher back in the 17th century, a guy named Benedict Spinoza, made a telling observation. He says, I have wondered that people who make boast of professing the Christian religion, namely love, joy, peace, temperance, charity, all men, should quarrel with such rancorous animosity and display daily towards one another such bitter hatred that this, rather than the virtues which they profess, is the readiest criteria of their faith. We say one thing, but we act in a very different way. Selfish desire is deadly desire. It evidences too, James says, a disregard for God and a confidence in self. He continues in verse 2, he says, Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give give you pleasure. When it's all about me, I I don't even think about God. You might call it uh, practical atheism. I, I give lip service to God, but I don't really include him in my prayers as far as what I want or... If I do, my motives are so selfish, as he says here, that when I do come and ask for it, God, like a good father, knows that it's really not something that I need or that just will reinforce my selfishness. And so, in his wisdom, he says, no. Prayer is not really ultimately all about what I want. It's about what God wants. But we just don't pray that way. We pray, if we pray, selfish prayers. Bobby Richardson, that baseball player one time, penned this prayer. He said, Dear God, thy will be done, nothing less, nothing more, nothing else. Amen. 
What does God know that we need? There's always this tension in our lives between our wants and our needs and this question of motivation that God sees. When I was a kid, sometimes I would come to my dad and I would keep asking for something again and again and again and again. And his pushback was sometimes something, maybe your, maybe your parents said something like this. He says, well, if you, if you could get it, you'd like to have a hole in your head too, right? I mean, it was, it was to try to get me to smile at my insistence on more and more things that I wanted. Life is really not all about pleasure, and no one knows that any more about me than my, my heavenly Father. He reads my selfish request and too often has to say, no, I'm disappointed, but he understands. James goes on in verse 4 to 1 about what he describes as a divided heart, and he says it in very blunt fashion. He says, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? Whoa, that's, that's tough language. He calls you and me adulterers, friends of the world. Verse 5, do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. James is describing the fact that we should have a love affair with God and not with the world. We can't have that divided heart. In fact, the word that he uses here in the Greek in the text for this adultery is feminine. He's describing actually as, as if we we're an adulteress. In the Old Testament, the relationship with God was a lot of times seen as a marriage. Isaiah 54.5 talks about our maker being our husband. There is a covenant that we share with each other. Jeremiah 3.20 says, But you have been unfaithful to me, you people of Israel. You have been like a faithless wife who leaves her husband. The second of the Ten Commandments talks about not giving ourselves over to idolatry, worshiping something that is not God. And it, it comes with this warning. He says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, and I will not tolerate your affection with other gods. A little later in James 4, 8, he talks about loyalty being, demanded, being divided, about double-minded or double-souled kind of living. We lose ourselves in that tension to the God of this world and the true God of our life. It's not really too hard to get the sense of what he's trying to say here. Men, if, if your wife came home one day and said that there is another man in my life, but you will always be number one to me, I'd like to have both of you. What would your response to that be? I, I doubt you'd say, well, that, that's fine with me. God is saying you cannot have your allegiance to this world and also claim allegiance to me. It destroys our marriage. And an affair is a slippery thing. You know, most people don't get up when they're going to commit adultery and say, I think today I'm going to commit adultery. I mean, it, it is this seed planted in heart that grows over time and then finally moves into the head and the hand or whatever. And before long, the deed is committed and the fertile soil has been the divided heart. Well, there's more that we could say here, but I'm kind of tired of talking about causes. I'd like to find something about cures, okay? Let's look at the other side. We know a little bit about why James says we have this conflict with each other. What do we do to settle it? Well, we, f we finish up by starting in verse 6 where he says, And God gives grace generously. 
as the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. There's an amazing story in the Old Testament about a prophet whose name is Hosea. God, believe it or not, asked Hosea to marry a prostitute, or at least someone who became that way. I think probably she was that way from the beginning. And he, he lived this tortured marriage. The preacher is married to a prostitute. They even have children that they give strange names at God's uh, directive to kind of help the people of Israel see how crazy that family system is. The wife leaves the prophet Hosea at one point. And then God comes back to Hosea and says this. He says, go and love your wife again, even though she commits adultery with one another, with another lover. This will illustrate that the Lord still loves Israel, even though the people have turned to other gods and love to worship him. If I'm Hosea, I'm thinking, what? What do you mean I got to take her back? But he does that. And Hosea says, so I bought, I bought her. He had to buy her back because she would... She kind of sold herself into her business. He bought her back. Then he says, I said to her, you must live in my house for many days and stop your prostitution. He, he offers grace. It's balanced with reality, but he clings to love. He didn't say do whatever you want, but for me, the key in here is that we always lead in our relationships with grace. The message of the gospel upends everything that the world celebrates, the gospel says the way to up is down. The way to great is humble. The way to climbing is kneeling. So many in life are at odds with each other because we have somehow concluded it's about gaining rather than giving. It's about strength rather than weakness. We flip the kingdom values up to, upside down. Dick Hollinsworth uh, had a had a dear mentor and friend, John Claypool, who was telling him about a time in his life where he grew up feeling that he, well, he described it as nobodiness was his issue. He said his parents meant to encourage him when he was growing up, but they kept saying, um, if you're ever going to mount anything, you're going to have to make something of yourself. And all of his life, he was, he was consumed with making something into himself, and he fell into this Great, the game of competition. He was the teacher's pet. He was elected to the school patrol. Uh, there was another thing to win here and there. Then came athletics in his life. People became objects, just whatever they could contribute to his life. There was always something more that he needed to do to make a name for himself until he was about 35 years old. And this guy was a minister, and he was in a group of ministers who joined together and became amazingly transparent and vulnerable. And one day he just opened up and said he confessed that his whole life had been spent trying to prove himself. Then he got a word of grace, he says, from a man in the group that was the least likely that he had any affinity with. The man said, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. He just declared it. You are, the man said. You are. It is your birthright. There is nothing to achieve. By birthright, we are persons of worth. You don't have to acquire it. You just claim it. And he said it was almost as, for the first time as if his head lit up and it was like, oh, it's not about 
it's not about climbing. It's not about a contest. It's not about warfare. It's, it's about understanding who I am. It's not about craving for something more in this elusive game of whatever I've done. It's not about proving myself. It's not about snatching and grabbing and coveting and wanting. It's about accepting and claiming God's grace. If the essence of sin is selfishness, the path to grace is humility. Then in quick order, he just kind of throws a bunch of stuff in towards the end. He talks about this portrait of repentance, how we get get back as part of the cure. He says the quarreling and fighting, this inability to get get along with each other at its core requires us to diminish ourselves. So humble yourselves, he says in verse 7, before God. Resist the devil and he will flee. There's a series of imperatives here. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let the tears for what you have done, let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the God, the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. Submit. Who likes to submit? It, the word comes from the military sense. It's, it's the rank. It's like you're down here and somebody else is up there and you need to recognize that you're down here. Warren Wearsby puts it this way. When a buck private acts like a general, there's going to be trouble. That will be true in a church as well. We don't like to submit. We would prefer to have the bars on our shoulders. We want to be the generals in our wars. We want to assume what we think is our rightful place, which is always above somebody else. Humility, God says, is blessed. He opposes the proud, but he lifts up the humble. In fact, James says in verse 10, humble yourselves and God will lift you up with honor. He goes on and says, resist, not each other, but the devil. Another combat imagery. Don't get in a fight with you and your brother or sister, but realize that Satan is the one who creates our challenges. Fight not against each other, but against him. And with these imperatives, he also talks about blessings. We've already talked about how we humble ourselves and we're honored. But here he says, you resist the devil and he will flee from you because the battle has already been won. John Ortberg tells a story about a couple colleagues that he was with and one of the staff members of the church. They were walking on the beach in, in California, in Southern California, and they were passing by this bar, and this, this guy comes tumbling out, and there evidently had been a scuffle on the inside, and he's kind of bloody, and they realize they, they need to do something to be able to help <clears throat> because some other guys were chasing him out. And he said they really weren't too intimidating themselves, but they said, hey, cut that out. You know, what do you say when somebody's doing something like that? But then suddenly there was this look of fear in these guys that were chasing this guy out, and they couldn't figure out exactly what it was. And suddenly the guys that had been chasing and pounding on this guy moved out the other way, and they turned around and looked, and he said it was the biggest man that he'd ever seen. Must have been six feet, seven inches tall, 300 pounds, 2% body weight, a huge guy. They called him Bubba, not to his face, but afterwards that's what they, what they called him. And they realized that he was right behind them. 
And it imbued them with such boldness and confidence that suddenly Ortberg was like, hey, yeah, you guys need to get out of here. You know, they got Bubba. They got Bubba behind them. But he asked himself, if you were convinced that Bubba was there 24 hours a day, wouldn't that fundamentally change your approach to the challenges that you face in life? And he asked this question, how big is your God? We're not calling Bubba, but you, you, you get the point, don't you? The sight of God, he says, will make Satan flee. Come close, he goes on to say. Ever wonder when you offended somebody whether they will let you back into a relationship with him? Well, remember that Old Testament Hosea and his story? Take her back. Take her back. God always comes to us with love. You come close to God and he will come close to you. Wash your hands. Boy, haven't we done an awful lot of that lately. I mean, washed our hands. We have videos that tell us how to wash our hands. We, they tell us how long we have to sing, happy birthday, to be able to wash our hands. Well, the priest would prepare themselves for their work by washing their hands. Not that they could clean off their sin, but it would remind them of their brokenness and their dirtiness when they come before God. Psalm 24 says, Who may climb to the mountain of the Lord? Who can stand in that holy place? Only those whose hands and hearts are pure, who don't worship idols and never tell lies, they will receive the Lord's blessing and have a right relationship with God, their Savior. How do I ever get clean enough? I'm not the one that does the cleaning. I love the words of the church father, Augustine, who said once, God gives what he demands. He asks us to be clean, and he does the cleaning. You remember Jesus washing his disciples' feet on the last night of his life here on earth, and Peter saying, no, no, you're not going to do that. And Jesus says, if I don't do that, you will not be clean. You will not be one of mine. He goes on, rushes to the end. Let there be tears, sorrow, grief, sadness, gloom. Don't make this a casual thing. This war, this enmity that we have with each other is real, and part of the cure is going to have to be there needs to be some repentance on your part. You've got to take sin seriously. It's okay for there to be some tears. <clears throat> the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, it says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn. They will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the earth birth. If selfishness is the essence of sin, humility is the true path towards God. So, go back to the question we started with. What causes all of these quarrels and fight amongst us? James says it's all a matter of the heart. Now, you would hope that in the church it would be different. None of that grasping, but always giving. None of that climbing, but always kneeling. None of that pursuit of greatness, but that embrace of humility. But that's not always the case. I like the way this translation captures the last words of what we've read in this fresh way. And I, I'll let it head us to the end. So let God work his will in you. Yell aloud, no to the devil and watch him scamper. Say a quiet yes to God and he'll be there in no time.
Quit dabbling in sin. Purify your inner life. Quit playing the field. Hit bottom and cry your eyes out. The fun and the games are over. Get serious, really serious. Get down on your knees before the master. It is the only way you'll get on your feet. Remember the words of Rodney King? Can we all get along? Can we just all get along? We can, but it's a good thing to read what James has to say about the cause of all of our struggle as well as the cure. The question this morning becomes, have we? Have we listened? Have we listened? Let's pray. God, we are stubborn souls. We read words like these, and sometimes we just go out and act just like we did yesterday, claiming our right and our place and struggling and boxing with each other, maybe sometimes gently, but sometimes pummeling each other because we want what they have, what we think should be ours. God, I pray that as we have listened today, that we have heard, but even more, that as we live in this week, we'll act like it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.